Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast today. We are in Matthew today, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And remember, we are at the beginning of Lent. And so this is about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Yeah, Christy, um, um, we've seen, you know, every year we've seen something about Jesus' temptation. Matthew has a couple of verses, and Luke has a, a narrative similar to Matthew's. Um, but as we'll see, Matthew's version brings out themes that are important in Matthew's overall narrative, mm-hmm. especially that Jesus fulfilled all righteousness and thus received all authority in heaven mm-hmm. and on earth. I think there's a connection between uh, Jesus' baptism and his temptation and the final scene in, in the Gospel of Matthew. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 I saw that too when I read it, and I think we'll see later on that, that actually that's where Calvin ultimately lands. I'm not sure he puts it quite in that same language. So mm-hmm. um, it's a really important one for us to be then reading this during yep, Lent. Yeah, mm-hmm. yep, sure. And it, I think it's important for us as, we, as we're just kind of introducing this passage to um, note that as W.D. Davies and Dale Allison argue in their uh, three-volume commentary on Matthew, at least in Matthew's gospel, the baptism and the temptation stories belong together. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not so clear in Mark and Luke, but um, in Matthew's gospel, it's fairly mm-hmm. clear. And together they serve uh, as something similar to the call narratives of the prophets mm-hmm. in the Hebrew yeah. Bible. So here, Matthew presents Jesus as the one who is called to fulfill God's righteousness, which covers a wide range of ideas in Matthew's gospel, from from his obedience to the Father's will, just that, that, that simple term of righteousness, uh, seen ultimately in his willingness to go to the cross, to his advocacy for the justice of God's kingdom, which was an important role of the servant mm-hmm. of the Lord, if you, if you go back and look at that theme in Isaiah, to his response to the temptations that he faces. All of those cover, uh, all of those fall under the, the heading of fulfilling God's righteousness. So, you know, you've, you've said these go together, and um, I'm not sure that everyone is, is going to see that initially. So how does this baptism set us up, if you will? Yeah, so in Matthew's gospel, Jesus' baptism not only introduces Jesus' role as son of God, but also as servant of the Lord. And, and you know, we see in the voice that comes from heaven uh, in Matthew 3:17 this is my son which is at least an allusion to if not a quotation from Psalm 2:7 in the Septuagint uh, and then the rest of the passage the beloved with whom I am well pleased um, uh, is uh, it represents a translation of Isaiah 42:1 it's different from the Septuagint but um, it it is the same as a quotation from Isaiah forty two one that Matthew uses in Matthew twelve eighteen. So mm-hmm. he seems to be working with maybe a, uh, a Hebrew version of Isaiah forty two one here. Mm-hmm. So the voice at Jesus' baptism identifies him as the Son of God mm-hmm. and the servant of the Lord. And this, I think, also fits together with the idea that Jesus has come to fulfill all righteousness because. Um, uh, you know the righteousness that Jesus has come to fulfill um, is is an important part of the role of the servant in Isaiah in Second Isaiah, uh, but it's also you, you know we've already mentioned that righteousness or dikaiosune is an important theme in Matthew, and we see the introduction of that theme here in mm-hmm. in in Jesus' baptism because you you recall that when when Jesus comes to be to be baptized by John the Baptist John the Baptist objects right and Jesus says no it is fitting for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. righteousness yes right. yes so that that's the introduction of, of this theme dikaiosune or righteousness in Matthew's gospel so how does that then carry on to today's message well um, I think um, in, the, in this Matthew story, the temptation, um, we also see as we, you know, we've seen, we, we have another theme that we've seen before in Matthew's infancy narrative in that Jesus as the son of God repeats the experience of Israel, particularly in the mm, Exodus yes. and the wilderness. So like God's son, Israel, Israel, Jesus comes through the waters of baptism, which could reflect the Exodus, mm-hmm. to be tested or tempted in the wilderness for 40 days 
And, of course, Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, whereas Israel failed their test, however, Jesus holds fast to his faith in and faithfulness to God, which basically is the definition of fulfilling all righteousness. You know, as I'm, this is fascinating. I'm not sure I would have necessarily picked up on this, just reading it myself. My question is, would Matthew's audience have picked up on this? I think so. I think so. I think they would have seen, been able to hear the importance of the word dikaiosune in, in Matthew's gospel. I think, I think there would have at least been some who would have recognized the allusion to Psalm 2 and the allusion mm-hmm. to the servant of the mm-hmm. Lord in Isaiah 42. Um, and just, just the whole role of fulfilling righteousness as being one not only of doing God's will, but also of, of bringing the justice of God's reign to pass you know, this is this is the role of the servant in Second Isaiah. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know, as I'm processing this, and I think when I'm thinking about modern day folks, I think their Old Testament knowledge is not sufficient enough that they pick right. up on that. Right. Um, but uh, I mean, the, yeah. the 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 Hebrew Bible or and or the Septuagint that was the Bible of the church. Right. So right. I mean, that that was the Bible they read in worship. Right, right. So exactly. So I yeah. think they definitely would have picked up. It's, it's uh, fascinating. Unfortunately, it's in wonderful. our day, even even churches that are lectionary churches oftentimes omit the Old Testament. Oh readings. yes, absolutely. And so then you miss some of these pieces, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, only Luke's gospel has a similar temptation narrative. Mark, as I mentioned before, only diverts, devotes two verses to it. But in comparison, Matthew and Luke report the temptations in a different order. In mm-hmm. and, and that's something that. It's, I think, most of us are aware of. Mm -hmm. In Matthew's version, the order of the temptation presents an increasingly more intense challenge for Jesus. So I think that's sort of the rationale Mm -hmm. behind the way Matthew organizes or or arranges the order of the temptations. First, using his power or authority to relieve his hunger, um, then putting his trust in God's faithfulness to the test, and then finally abandoning fidelity to God's purpose mm-hmm. altogether and obedience to God's will by worshiping the tempter. So you have this, you have this increasingly more intense challenge mm-hmm. for Jesus. But at each point, in each one of these temptations, Jesus demonstrates his com- commitment to fulfilling all righteousness by remaining true to God and to Scripture. And so already here, again, um, this, is, this ties into the theme of righteousness in Matthew's gospel. We've, we've already been through this because you know we're backing up a little bit in our sequence with with the revised common lectionary, but um, you know Jesus is Jesus is going to teach the disciples that they need to fulfill the greater righteousness in Matthew five twenty, mm-hmm. and we've already got an example of that in in Jesus at his temptation mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. wilderness, and so. Um, um, you know, again, this this points out the theme, and of course, later on in Matthew six, we all know the we all know the verse Matthew six thirty three. You know, seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness, right. and so you know this is going yes. to be a focal point for Jesus in His ministry. Yeah. Now, of course, this is kind of a, a background, but but what what is the what's the intent of these temptations? That and that is that is I think probably a a, a very important question that most people just kind of either mm-hmm. overlook or just assume. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think most people assume that the, the temptation narratives intend to convey Jesus' actual experience, whether a physical experience or a psychological experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's a question I think we have to, to raise. Uh, other possible uh, intentions include that, that Basically, the, the temptation narratives are intended to, to encourage Christian disciples as they face temptation. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the ways in which the temptation narratives have been interpreted throughout Christian oh, history. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and then a third possibility uh, 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 is do the, do the temptation narratives intend to convey a Christological affirmation? Mm-hmm. And I would say in light of the baptism in Matthew's mm-hmm. gospel, the temptation narrative certainly conveys an affirmation about Jesus as the Christ, right. the Son of God, and the servant of the Lord. Yeah. You know, I was just trying to process how I had understood this before, right? Maybe not even prior to this, prior to this study. And I think 
Um, yes, I think that Christological piece definitely has been part of my mind. Well, I mean, the but, first two temptations start out, if you are the Son yeah, of God, right? Yeah, right, exactly. But I, I also think... I also have heard people re- reference this encouragement they, they mm-hmm. can receive from this. And, you know, if Jesus could do that, I can. And um, I, I suppose actual experience for, for someone who's not a literalist in that sense, that would be one that hadn't spent as much time mm-hmm. processing, maybe not exactly as described. Right, you know? right. And I, I think, you know, you can't deny that, that the temptation narrative, at least as a secondary application, serves to instruct disciples mm-hmm. as they face their temptations. Yeah, that, there's no denying that. Mm-hmm. I think the question, though, whether the temptation narrative intends to convey Jesus' actual experience is much harder to answer. Um, Jesus clearly makes reference to his encounter with and defeat of the powers of evil. Mm-hmm. Matthew 12, 28 and 29, Jesus talks about, you know, he, he has this confrontation with the Jewish religious leaders where they claim that he's casting out demons by the power of evil. And, and he says, you know, basically, no, if, I, if, if I'm casting out demons by the power of the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so this, he, he says this is an indication that the kingdom of God is present in my mm-hmm. ministry. But mm-hmm. then he goes on in verse 29 of Matthew 12 to talk about, you know, you can't, you can't plunder a strong man's house unless you first bind the strong man. And, mm-hmm. of course, the implication is that the strong man is, is the, devil the devil or Satan, right? Yep. right? Yep. And so um, uh, you do have some statements where Jesus talks about his confrontation with evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, Luke ten eighteen, I saw Satan fall like lightning, mm-hmm. you know. Um, however, the details of the temptation narrative demonstrate I think, I mean, this is not an original idea to me, but I, I agree with those who think this. It demonstrate the details of the temptation narrative demonstrate a sophisticated interpretation of key passages from Deuteronomy chapter 6 through 8, especially Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 3, which refers to the Lord leading Israel through the wilderness mm-hmm. for 40 years in order to test whether they would obey him or not, during which time he let them hunger. Now, I don't think this necessarily means that the temptation narrative you know, could not reflect an actual experience of Jesus, but I think we have to recognize that Matthew's yeah. and Luke's narrative as we have it reflects a significant elaboration of that experience through reflection on uh, key scripture texts. Right, right, and that makes more sense, and I think that makes more sense with our, our rational brain as well, you know, a human being. Jesus is fully human, can't survive for 40 days without food. And those kind of logical right. things, right? Right. So we have to maybe look at that as uh, some kind of um, symbolic reference. It's a, there's a thematic mm-hmm. point there. It's, again, yeah. again, in Matthew's exactly. context, the point of that is the, is the comparison between exactly. Jesus and Israel. Right. Where Israel failed to obey right. God, Jesus is going to succeed. Well, and I think it's, you know, of all the, all the words that would help, recall 40 would stick in your mind wait mm-hmm. i've heard that before mm-hmm. you know right of all right. those things that might catch help people trigger Surely. them that that memory Surely. well and another 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 connection would be the 40 days that that elijah was in the wilderness as well mm-hmm. so i mean oh, 40, right. is a, 40, 40 is a 40 is a, a big day is a, it's, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a significant yeah. number in the hebrew bible yeah so and in this sometimes i've heard this preached where there's a lot of emphasis on that the spirit has led Jesus. So talk about that. I think that's important. Yeah. He opens, Matthew opens the temptation narrative by stating simply that Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil in Matthew 4.1. It may seem strange to us, but in all synoptic gospels, the the impetus for Jesus' journey into the wilderness to be tempted was the spirit. Mark 1.12 says the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Uh, Luke 4 says that Jesus was led by the Mm -hmm. Spirit in the wilderness. But in Matthew's gospel, the narrative implies that the Spirit has a hand at least in setting up the conditions for Jesus to be tested and or tempted by the Mm -hmm. devil. So, and, and, you know, the, 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 the version that I read of Matthew 4.1 above was from the new RSV updated edition, the recently released updated edition. When did that come out? Just, just. Last year, yeah, I think. Yeah, I've been seeing that more now, this updated yeah, version. I think mm-hmm. it was just last year. Um, all the other major English Bible versions translate the verb pyrosthenai as to be tempted. And that includes the previous New, R- New Revised Standard Version. Um, they all, all the major, 
you know, English Bible versions do that. The only exceptions are the contemporary English version, the, the message translation, uh, the New Testament for Everyone by Tom Wright, and the new RSV updated edition, which all read test, te- some form of tested, you know, that, that mm-hmm. this was some form of testing. Now, there's a new Matthew Bible that's, that's, a, that's something interesting. It's come along apparently beginning in 2016. Huh. That's, it's meant to be a revision of the original Matthew Bible from the Reformation era. Uh, it, it reads tried. So I, I think, again, you know, there's, there's, there's an issue there. And, of course, the problem is it raises the issue of the meaning of the verb pyrazo. Does it mean to test or does it mean to tempt? Well, it's clearly used in the Septuagint for God's interactions with people. He tested, tempted Abraham mm-hmm. in Genesis 22.1. He tested, tempted Israel in the wilderness, several places. But by the time of the Second Temple, which a lot of, lot of historians of this era talk about the Second Temple right. period. This is, the, yep. this is the period after the exile. Uh, it would seem that language was a, that, that, that this kind of language of tempting was mm-hmm. attributed to the Satan as the one who incites people to evil. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, there was this um, growing discomfort with attributing that kind of language to God. Right. Even though it's right there in the Hebrew Bible and the Septuagint right. for all, all yeah. to see, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and we see this, I think, reflected in an ambiguity surrounding the word pyrazo in the New mm-hmm. Testament. So I think translation, the translations that read tested in English are likely reflect an unwillingness to attribute any aspect of temptation, temptation. to God. Yes. Or in yes. this case, to the Spirit. Well, and we're going to see how Calvin treats this later on, which is really interesting. So you can wait for that but you know as i was um as i was processing this too i think does isn't there a reference to satan the tempter well he's called the tempter in 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 this in this narrative yeah in this narrative so satan satan the tempter so yes and so there's definitely that association with satan and being being that that guy if you will as opposed to god yeah, yeah. The, and it's you know typically I think diabolos is more common in the New Testament, the devil. Mm-hmm. But he he you know this this the devil is identified as the tempter uh, in the New Testament mm-hmm. definitely. Okay. okay. So this is it's it's almost and it's it's interesting because in this we'll see you know the uh, the language is ha pyrazon the tempting one. <laughs> it's yeah, kind of yeah, like that's what I thought. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. like John ha baptizone, but the baptizing. That, I guess one. that's the point I was trying to make. It's that same. It's that yeah. same root. It's that yeah. same word. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's yeah. very much a, his part. Part of this, you know, the devil's identity in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Now it's not clear in Mark's gospel, but Matthew and Luke indicate that Jesus did not eat during his time in the wilderness. Matthew says he fasted forty days and forty nights, and afterward he was famished. I think that's a bit of an understatement, probably. Uh, yes. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> we don't know exactly what kind of fast. There are different kinds of fasts. That is true. But that the implication is, true. is that he went without food. Right. Uh, obviously, right. he couldn't have gone without water. But the implication is that he went without food. Now, while both Mark and Luke indicate that Jesus was tested and or tempted during the entire 40 days he spent in the wilderness, Matthew reports that the temptation came after the 40 days of fasting. Um, mm-hmm. And so in, in verse 2, he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was famished, famished. And then in verse 3, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And again, you have the shift in the language from the devil to the tempter here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I guess I should maybe go back to that. Uh, does it matter that they have shifted? Well, I think the point the- is that, that the language of Matthew's narrative demonstrates that by the time of the New Testament, the devil was so identified with the act of tempting that he be, could be called could be, the could tempter. Could be called the tempter. The okay. tempter. The yeah, one, yeah, the yeah. tempting yeah. one, literally. So I guess the point is that we, and I, of course, I read that understanding that was a devil. Yeah. And so, yeah. 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 Okay. Now, now this, the first temptation or test seems harmless, right? Mm, right. Um, um, uh, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. You know, what could be wrong with Jesus feeding himself when he was hungry? Right. 
But as we have seen, the theme of the temptation narrative in Matthew is to demonstrate Jesus is, that Jesus is intent upon fulfilling all righteousness. And the premise of the question, if you are the Son of God, indicates the point of this temptation. Given the affirmation he has just received at his baptism, mm-hmm. this is my son, right? Right, right. Uh, the tempter seeks to persuade Jesus to act on his own rather than obeying God. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And... This will be the theme of all the temptations Jesus will face, essentially, right. up to and including the cross, not just right. in this situation, but all the temptations he's going to face throughout his life, uh, whether he is going to act on his own rather than obeying God. Right. And this is something that Calvin picks up on. I didn't actually, I'm not actually going to cover it, but this is something that Calvin was very, very in tune with. So mm-hmm. I, I think we hear that same that same kind of discussion. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really sort of a temptation. The temptation is around what is it, what does it mean for Jesus to fulfill the role of the son of God or the servant? Exactly. Of the Lord, right? Exactly. So um, in response, then Matthew's temptation narrative quotes Deuteronomy eight, three from the Septuagint here, but he answered Jesus. That is, it is written. One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Again, thus making clear Jesus commitment to obey God. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And so then we have a second temptation. Right. Mm-hmm. And in, in, uh, again, in Matthew's gospel, the second temptation is directed, uh, again, toward the question of whether or not Jesus will fulfill all righteousness. But in the second temptation, we have the, the one where Jesus is brought to Jerusalem to the pinnacle of the temple. Mm-hmm. So since okay. Jesus responded in the first temptation by quoting scripture, the devil responds <laughs> in kind. Right. So Matthew tells us in Matthew 4, 5, and 6, Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Now, of course, the holy city refers to Jerusalem, but it is impossible to identify at this remove um, the precise referent of the pinnacle of the temple. Mm -hmm. Uh, But here, the point of the temptation would seem that since Jesus trusts God, he should demonstrate that trust by showing his reliance on a promise from Scripture. Yes, yes. Right? And, and there is some debate, I think, about the, the, the devil's citation of Psalm 91, 11 through 12, and actually it's Psalm 90, 11 through 12 from the Septuagint. Right. Because in all your ways uh, is left out from the citation. Uh, so in the Hebrew, um, I'm reading the New RSV translation, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. And, you know, some think, well, the fact that, that, this was left out of the citation indicates that um, this was an intentional distortion of the psalm text. Whether or not that's the case, I would say that the devil's intent in citing this passage definitely constitutes a misuse of Scripture. The whole point of Psalm 91 is to encourage Mm -hmm. trust in God's faithfulness, but the devil turns it into a test of God's faithfulness, Mm -hmm. which, again, is distorting the meaning of Psalm 91. And I think Jesus clearly recognizes this and cites Deuteronomy 6.16 in response. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the (laughs) test in in Matthew 4.7. And so, again, Jesus affirms his determination to fulfill all righteousness by refusing to put God to the test, Mm -hmm. as the people of Israel did in the wilderness. They tested mm-hmm. God at Massa when they right, when they were right. they did. Yep. complaining about yep. water. Exactly, exactly. Yep. And so then we have the third temptation. Yes, and the third temptation further escalates the stakes. At this point, the devil takes Jesus to a very high mountain and offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in their glory if Jesus will fall down and worship him. That's Matthew 4, 8, mm-hmm. and 9. And I think it's significant here that Matthew's temptation narrative omits the statement we saw in Luke's version last year. In Luke 4, 6, um, the, the devil says to him, I will give all this authority, I will give you all this authority and gl- their glory, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned last year, from a biblical perspective, it really is impossible to, to endorse the idea right. that somehow control of the world has been given over to the devil. Now, it is clear that this notion is consistent with the outlook of apocalyptic literature. Mm-hmm. And the New Testament bears the influence of that ideology in several places. So, for example, uh, the Gospel of John in several places can refer to the devil as the ruler mm-hmm. of this world, which I find just totally... Uh, yeah. I'm just, I'm just amazed 
that that John's gospel could 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 right. endorse that, right? Right, right. But given 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 the the importance of God reigning in in biblical theology. Uh, Paul uh, makes some mentions. He mentions the God of this world in Second Corinthians right, four four, right. and and similarly in Ephesians uh, two two, he has a similar phrase. Or in in Ephesians six twelve, he says that our our battle is against the rulers of this darkness, and he uses the term cosmokratoras. And mm. if you're familiar with your Christology, you know the history of Christology. You know that the term cosmocrator was applied to Christ, mm-hmm. uh, ruler so of the, there's the really cosmos. There's some confusion, really, in the authors, I think, and that are making that probably lend today some of the confusion in the interpretation. It does. It does. Mm-hmm. So again, I think we we see here the influence of apocalyptic thinking on the New Testament yeah. writers, but. I, I don't think it is consistent with the fundamental affirmation of the Hebrew Bible that the Lord reigns, mm-hmm. nor is it consistent with the theology of the New Testament that affirms that Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God where he reigns over mm-hmm. all things, including the powers of this world. In Ephesians, <laughs> Ephesians 1, 20 through 21, he says, God has exerted his power in, by raising Jesus uh, from the dead and seating him above all the authorities and powers in this world. <laughs> and and so even in within Ephesians, you have this sort of tension that mm. you've got this affirmation of Jesus as being above all the authorities and powers, but then you have this reference to the, these powers as if they had some as if they had control over the world. Mm-hmm. And and you know we might say, well, yeah, you can see the influence of evil in in people's actions, and that's certainly clear. But to say that somehow God has uh, given over control of the world to the powers of evil is is almost tantamount to a kind yeah. of atheism. Yeah, you yeah. Know, because it, right. it, God would have to abdicate being God to do that. Well, it, you know, faith wise, that really messes with you know confidence in Absolutely. in God's providence, right? So it's really, and we're going to see this some of this going on in Calvin's world too, as he's as he's trying to make sense of this kind of language within the context of his theology, and, and there's some inconsistencies. Well, mm-hmm. and for me, when push comes to shove, if it's a choice between um, a, you know, a, a full-blown demonology and the sovereignty of God, I'm going to choose <laughs> the sovereignty of God yeah. every time. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you know, you know that reminds me a little bit of, of Pascal's wager, actually. Yeah. You know, I cannot yeah. believe, or I can believe because that's a kind of better way to go yeah why would you why would you wager on the devil i mean (laughs) but but the other i mean the other thing also is i mean the whole theology of the resurrection and the ascension of christ you know is that christ is reigning from the right hand of god even now exactly exactly so where is there room to 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 ascribe to 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 the devil this kind of power i don't see it i don't either i don't either i think that's our Human weakness taking over. Well, you know, the, again, these ideas were, were around. They were yeah. prominent in that day. Well, it's in the New Testament, and so people don't know what to do with it because right. if it's in the Bible, it's got to be true, right? And and yeah, and yeah. so it and it comes down through the church, and of course, as we've talked before, you have this full blown demonology and satanology that develops in the late in the late Middle Ages oh, yeah. that then affects the reformers. And so, if the reformers are mentioning it, well, then you know, we, exactly. we, we, you know, it's got to be true. Exactly. And exactly. Uh, I I just think you know it, it was it was a it was a false trail all along. Yeah, I I agree. I agree. Yeah. So, um, again, then, this temptation concerns whether or not Jesus will fulfill all righteousness. Um, you know, to, to, to fulfill all righteousness means that he's going, to, um, he's going to act in ways that are consistent with God's will and the kingdom of God. To fall down and worship anyone but God would be a violation of the first commandment. And so, while perhaps the end is a good one, you know, for Jesus to have uh, the, the authority over all the kingdoms of the world, um, the means suggested are inconsistent with fulfilling all righteousness. And so Jesus responds in Matthew's temptation narrative by simply commanding Satan to leave. Away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only, in Matthew 4.10. 
Now here the citation is meant to reflect Deuteronomy 6.13, but unlike the others, it does not cite the Septuagint. And, and the wording is a bit different mm. from the Hebrew. And so, But in one respect, I think perhaps we should see Deuteronomy 6.13, along with the earlier citation of Deuteronomy 6.16, um, um, do not put the Lord your God to the test. You know, Deuteronomy is reflecting Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 12, 25 as a whole, which follows the Shema, mm-hmm. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. And all of this serves as a kind of conclusion to the Ten Commandments mm-hmm. in Deuteronomy 5, mm-hmm. right? Calling the people to, to be faithful to God and to obey God. Mm-hmm. So then because... And one of the things we see here in Matthew's temptation narrative is that because Matthew's gospel reflects the devil and all the agents of evil as defeated, the tempter must obey. And Matthew just simply says, then the devil left him. Uh, and there's no indication of conflict or struggle here, just the devil yeah, left him. the devil left yeah. him. Mm-hmm. So Matthew then also tells us that suddenly angels came and waited on him. And as we saw in Mark one thirteen, the verb waited on is diakoneo, which may imply that they fed Jesus. And again, this mm-hmm. seems to have some connections with the story of Elijah in the wilderness yes, in 1 yes, Kings chapter yeah, 19. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so concluding here, what? How, how does this end with the angels serving Jesus and then ultimately... Um, and then ultimately concluding the pericope. Yeah. I, 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 I want to say I don't think it's a coincidence that Matthew's version of the temptation narrative um, it takes place on a very high mountain. He's, he, he's led to a very high mountain in, in Matthew 4.1. As we saw last week, right, in Matthew 17, the Jesus transfiguration took place on a high mountain. But more importantly, what the tempter falsely offered in the temptation that Jesus would, he would give Jesus the authority over all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus himself declared that he had on the mountain, again, in Galilee, mm-hmm. in Matthew 28, 18, where Jesus meets his disciples after his resurrection. And he says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so um, I, I don't think that's a coincidence that all of these things happen on a mountain. Mm-hmm. And I think right. we're meant to, to, to hear, um, you know, in Matthew's temptation narrative, a kind of foreshadowing of what will be the final conclusion of Jesus' unswerving commitment to fulfill all righteousness, mm-hmm. which is the fact that God has given to him all authority in heaven and on earth because he has been faithful to fulfill all righteousness. Wow. That is a really cool ending, actually. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Hi, friends. We're back. And as Christy alluded to in our first segment, she's going to talk to us a little bit about um, how Calvin viewed uh, the whole image of the devil as a tempter. And so, Christy, tell, tell us what Calvin. Yeah, so has I to looked say. at Calvin's commentaries. I looked at the Institutes today, and I actually have some Luther if we want to go there. But um, for the Protestant reformers, this passage represents kind of a transitional period between an early modern confidence in God and God's goodness and kind of a medieval understanding of Satan. Um, and so clearly the reformers recognized, and, and this is important because this is the temptation by the devil, if you will, the temptation of, um, the temptation of Christ. And so I decided to go this route a little bit because there was just so much they talked about mm-hmm. and, and referencing this, uh, particular, particular passage. So, um, I think these are question marks. I, I think this whole kind of treatment of, of Satan, uh, it comes down to us today. The, you know, we talk about how the Reformation has kind of moved us ahead to today, and in many ways it has. But in, in, in terms of this demonology, I think it kind of sets us back, yeah. actually. And um, so there's just stuff you're going to hear to be like, oh, yes, I, 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 I have people talking about the forces of Satan and things like that in casual conversation. So that's why we're going to look at this. But Well, I mean, you know, in a sense, Calvin had one foot in the Middle Ages and one foot yeah. in the early modern well, era. And the same thing is true today. Some of us still have one foot, you know, right. in in some of that very traditional notions. Right. 
And same thing with Luther and your other reformers. And, you know, you have to think about a time frame when when they're seeing imagery of a devil-type character that it's um, creature-like, um, that has some human-like characteristics, um, those images fill their minds. I think it's, of the orcs in the Lord of mm-hmm. the Rings movies. <laughs> you know, it reminds me today of when we think about if just any time that we've, how much imagery has impacts what we think about things. So if we ask people to describe Jesus, they always give us that Jesus that, you know, is hanging on the wall, that famous picture. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, if you ask people to describe God, a lot of people will talk about God with some, you know, George Burns, right? Mm -hmm. White hair. And and, and, and so for, for this era, their concepts of Satan are well, are are kind of well emblazoned on their, on their, uh, on their minds. And so even if they start to make steps to move towards something that's a little more sophisticated, it's like they can't even step out of, of this kind of form formation. So I want you to think about that um, as we're talking about it. So obviously that the reformers recognize a Satan and um, that this Satan is identifiable um, and actively tempts human beings. And here in particular, the temptation of Christ was to prepare Christ for role as redeemer and for the onslaught of evil that would endure, endure later, that he would endure later. But it is more than just a battle between Jesus and Satan as Christ's victory here would foreshadow his ultimate victory. Yeah. Um, because Christ was willing to engage the devil here, he is willing to confront the devil on our behalf. So Satan is the reason that we are tempted and Satan pulls away from the conforming to God's law. Yet, and this is Calvin, because God is sovereign, God allows Satan <laughs> to tempt us. Can't get away from sovereignty, even if it's not consistent. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, it's it's kind of funny. You read When you first read Calvin, you don't necessarily even hear the God's sovereignty in there, and then it pops in. It's like, oh, but don't think the devil has too much power, because you start to kind of fall into that thinking, oh, my gosh, this is a separate force almost. And then he steps and says, oh, Wait, no. Oh, but for me, the very notion that Satan tempts everyone implies <clears throat> implies an, omnis- an omnipresence and an omnipotence that is appropriate only for God. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> but you don't want to associate, well, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that more. So you see, there's kind of this modern idea that evil, evil comes from the absence of God, and yet a medieval idea that Satan is the source of evil within Calvin's own writing. But... Satan can't be enough, if you will, because God's sovereign. You see the, you see the, the problem here. And Calvin yeah. uh, kind of identifies it, but he doesn't ever really handle it thoroughly. I think he thinks he does. But there's, at, at the end of the day, his response is, some of these things we just won't know till end mm-hmm. times. So, um, and so I think as you read this, and, and if you really read all of these things Calvin wrote, it's almost like you see an evolution of his thought, and you start to see those sticky points that we've talked about in Calvin. It's not that clear Calvinism that people want to put out to us. They'll pick out a couple passages and say, Calvin believes this, but when, when you're actually reading the material, you find that it has more inconsistencies. Mm-hmm. So Calvin does claim that our own brokenness is a cause of the separation between God and and humans in conduction with the pull of Satan. So this Satan exists and is able to reach out to, if you will, humanity's fallenness. Mm. Um, so it is the devil who can take something that is not innately evil and make it evil. Right. But again, where that comes from, so where is, what is that space? Right. So what's interesting is you're kind of like, okay, well, this devil seems to not, be formed as thoroughly, right? It's this kind of vague concept, and yet then you get this very physical language um, for the devil. Standard of the day describes Satan as ferocious um, and as having as a well-equipped enemy. He has the jaws of a raging lion, fangs and claws. <laughs> he can only be defeated by God himself. So that's almost like it's a separate force, well, again, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it seems to elevate uh, Satan to a kind of a quasi-deity. Exactly. But he, we can resist the temptation he brings through our trust in God. And, you know, this is the imagery of the period. And I actually, 
I actually copied off for Alan. If you want to uh, Google Matthias Gerung, a satire of indulgences. Um, and it's a wonderful woodcut. But, you know, you get, and I'm not going to go through the whole woodcut here, but just the imagery of the devil. You see this ugly looking beast. Gruesome. That, gruesome beast, yeah. right? Yeah. And this is the imagery that's always used. And, and every time you opened up a pamphlet, um, you would. And de- depicting a, a devil, or maybe you would even see uh, uh, some type of, of fresco. The devil ha- always has these characteristics, you know. Um, you would recognize it immediately. Just, you know, like today, uh, a little devil is always red with a pitchfork right. and, um, and, and little little horns. I mean, this... This is that image on steroids. Exactly. <laughs> e- exactly. And so... I, th- I just think that's important to keep in mind is that, and these images started in the Middle Ages um, and, and just really became part of the kind of visual scene. And so here is, here is Calvin with some of these questions about that the Satan doesn't really have the kind of power that God has. And yet at the same time, um, he describes this physical language and this kind of, as, as kind of an arch enemy look. So it's, it's, you kind of get a dualism in his writing, and yet I think if you put him to the test, Calvin would say, "Well, no, there's not really a dualism. The, the Satan does not really have any power in the end." Well, <laughs> you know, again, you know, the language that he uses sounds like he it is you know the to to say that Satan tempts everyone ascribes to him. A, an omnipresence and omnipotence that is appropriate only for God and not for a created being. Exactly. And, and beyond that, you know, the whole idea that, that um, um, you know, he can only be defeated by God himself. You know, it's like putting... Yeah. Putting him, it's sort of an anti-god. It's yeah, it sort of a it, du- is. it is a dualism. It, well, it, it I is, mean, but, but I, I would say at the end of the day, Calvin would not come down on that side. When you read through the rest of his stuff, he would say, no, "Oh I, no, 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 no," because God is God. God is the architect of the world. God is sovereign. God is has the most power. God will take anything that may be evil. So it almost then it has that more kind of modern sense of what's well, just really the absence of God. Yeah. I mean, it's very. Well, it's, it's it's very inconsistent. It's inconsistent because the language he uses to describe Satan seems to ascribe to him more than more than exactly. That. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, in the commentaries, Calvin um, actually goes into the specific temptations and th- th- these temptations of the devil. The first, the bread, gluttony. Um, <laughs> It's hard for me to see gluttony after Jesus has fasted for 40 days. Isn't, I know, right? Right? That Jesus could assuage his hunger simply by turning the rocks into stones. But then Calvin goes into a pretty sophisticated analysis of the temptation to make bread, claiming that this temptation is designed for us, at, well, at Jesus, but for us also to give up, uh, to give up on God for sustenance. Um, so the temptation is to give up on God for one's sustenance and rely on ourselves, yeah. Right, right, That's yeah. exactly, that's the temptation. Yeah. So he compares this feeding by God to the Hebrews receiving man in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that... That's, that's common, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so the temptation for Jesus to make bread would be a sign that Jesus had lost faith, right. had he... Had he had he done it. And even as this was applied to Jesus, Calvin claims that Satan daily attacks us with this same temptation. (laughs) There we are again. Um, Jesus response helps us respond to Satan. So again, there's this dualistic language, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, um, one of the most apocalyptic books in the new Testament is Jude and Jude has this notion that you know you don't you don't take on Satan yourself you know you you call on God to defend you from Satan sort of the original notion that that Calvin was endorsing right here. right right so the- now I didn't really go into depth on the other he goes into more depth but with similar to the same analysis about um, this t- kind of idea that of tempting and and this idea of this kind of selfishness that comes out of it or reliance on God and ultimately this whole idea of righteousness comes out that Alan talked mm-hmm. about in his writing. Um, but I, I, want, I wanted to spend a little bit more time with some of the other things that come out of the Satan discussion, which <laughs> um, 
is, of course, the language used to describe the Roman Catholic Church. Mm, yeah, sure. <laughs> of course, right? Because they, of course, have been entrapped by Satan. They have been uh, taken over by Satan. And so the Papist, says Calvin, have come to an arrangement with Satan. <laughs> wow. <laughs> In particular, is suppressing scripture. Now, I didn't, I didn't spend time, but this is a both the Roman Catholics and then the um, reformers are are literally mudslinging back and forth. Yeah. I'm sure there was similar rhetoric, rhetoric from the. Oh other side. yes, and you see it in the imagery as well, <laughs> yeah. back and forth. I mean, Luther was always considered to be Satan and always drawn as there's a, the same in what seven headed Luther with the oh, you yeah. know the Satan head on the Satan body, and oh, so yeah. this is going back and forth between between them but it is interesting again that both of them are still using this kind of beast image for mm-hmm. satan mm-hmm. um and so again in this particular ver- set of verses Sa- satan uses scripture against christ as as alan had pointed out um but as Calvin says, it is Satan who twists Scripture, misuses Scripture. Scripture is our shield, says Calvin, against Satan. So you're hearing sola scriptura there. Mm-hmm. So be not emphasizing Scripture. The Roman Catholic Church has taken away the armory. So Well, it's the, it's the whole armor of God, right, in mm-hmm. Ephesians chapter 6. <laughs> exactly. And so this, exactly. And he, he references that. And what's What's important here is that rem- remind you that the Roman Catholic Church is still only preaching in in up, I should say that they're, all of their liturgy is still in Latin. Right. There are places that you can get um, vernacular sermons, but they're usually not during the mass. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and there's not an emphasis at this point for lay people to read scripture. And so. Again, this is a very Reformation kind of comment. Sure. Um, and then Calvin says, if you will, they, quote, rob people of their arms with which alone they may manage to protect their salvation. Mm. That's by not letting them have scripture. Bernard. Sure, sure. And so for Calvin, and just to conclude on this section, Satan is under God and that he does not have a separate origin from the creation, but he is not of God. In Calvin's world of God's sovereignty, Satan cannot win um, over God and that all evil will ultimately be used for God's good purpose. But Satan, even though bound by God, is bent on trying to do things against God. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, I mean, there's, there's a lot in there that I could agree with, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, 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 and and it, it re- I mean, it really boils down to if God is the sovereign creator, where does evil come from? You know, yeah. uh, and and um, I, I personally don't think there is a clear answer to that question. Um, um, I so for me, you know, I fall down on the side of God's sovereignty, right. but um, um, you know, uh, it, I think it's clear in 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 biblical terms that you know God. God's purposes win the victory over all evil intents and right, all evil right. that there may be, right. and and so I, I get that right. Um, but then to say, even though Satan is bound by God, Satan is bent on trying to do things against God. Yeah. You know, again, it's like it's it just it. You know, it seems to attribute to to this entity yeah, yeah. more than it is due. Well, and I think maybe, you know, we're kind of looking at it from the modern era back, but mm-hmm. I think if you're looking at it right. from the ancient era, from the Reformation era up, we can actually this see some sophistication yeah, yeah, in indeed. Calvin's approach that indeed. you can see this tension in his writing that he's moving mm-hmm. people. and he's, he's trying to move away from a, from a pure dualism. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and to some extent... I think he's he offers us that kind of glimpse of modernity that's moving mm-hmm. ahead. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting when we talk about like Calvinists today is those people who want to, to be pure Calvinists, I think they get into trouble because they don't recognize Calvin the thinker. They just recognize Calvin a writer of doctrine and mm-hmm. and Calvin's not as black and white as they want him to be. They right. just he's just not. Right. So right. so I have another little piece for us today. So I thought if we're going to talk about, you know, demons, we better talk about angels. So (laughs) (laughs) we're kind of referencing the Dan Brown novel there, right? But anyway, another place we see this blend between the medieval and modern is in Calvin's discussion of angels, which, of course, we also see in this passage. And there are actually several sections in the Institutes 
dedicated to angels. Which which kind of just blows my mind, actually. It, it does. I mean, yeah, exactly. They're um, they're all in the uh, first um, first book, kind of in the fourteenth fourteenth chapter. Mm. Um, and I've got uh, I'm re- I'm referencing one, two, three, four, five, six, and so there's all that that whole section there yeah. is dedicated to angels and what angels are. Mm. Um, so. They are, according to Calvin, quote, God's ministers, ordained to carry out his commands. There should be no question that they are also his creatures. So there's this whole thing. Angels are below Christ, but are entrusted with our protection. Now this, beyond this, Calvin claims that we should not do too much speculation regarding the angels, um, which was, by the way, a great concern in the medieval period. So there's a lot of um, speculation about angels and their nature in the medieval period. And Calvin's like, eh, don't do that. But this is what we know about angels, right? (laughs) He continues to speculate. (laughs) Don't don't you see this interesting balance, right? We shouldn't speculate too much, but we can speculate just enough. Yeah. (laughs) But what Calvin does say about angels is what he gleans from Scripture. They are in service to God to carry out God's will, and they are intermediaries between God and humans. Quote, heavenly hosts and angels are one and the same. Calvin likens them <laughs> Calvin likens them to soldiers protecting God's kingdom. But in all of these duties, the most important for the angels is to keep vigil for our safety, take upon themselves our defense, direct our ways, and take care that some harm may not befall us. I'm thinking angels and saints of God defend us or something yes, like that. Yes, right? yes, And while he... Angels and ministers of God yeah, defend us. When we see this in Luther too, right? Mm. And, and it's important to... Um, Calvin, again, these are both uh, people of their age, right? Mm. And they're they're taught they're they're still drawn into this worldview that has shaped them mm-hmm. even if they are starting and particularly calvin to move out of it uh there's a whole piece a whole book by um heiko oberman's famous um a medieval scholar uh well no reformation scholar um he was he taught at uh, i believe arizona arizona university he um he was known for his, his book, uh, Luther Between God and Devil. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's really showing this kind of dualistic thought in Luther. And we still see it in Calvin. Yeah. So um, while he affirms... We still see it today. We still see it today. And while Calvin affirms this idea of these kind of angels as being um, protectors, um, he does not confirm the presence of guardian angels. Apparently, the tradition of the guardian angel came from Acts 12.15. It is his angel. But Calvin claims that this alone does not mean it is an individual thing. The angels have these people, these guardian angels watching over them (laughs) individually. (laughs) It feels like I'm talking about this. Just all mythology. It's yeah, really, right, it's kind of right. fun, right? Also, Calvin discusses whether angel, angels have bodily form and uses scriptures and the depiction of wings. Again. Do they have two on their on their feet and two on their... Well, he says, <laughs> you know what? We just should not speculate until we hit... <laughs> And, well, and, that's the description of the of the cherubim, you know. Exactly. In the oh, Ark I know, of the Covenant, right, right, right. Well, and they're kind of scary in their description, right? Mm. As opposed to Calvin and these, you know, these creatures that are helping us. And so it's kind of a strange right. balance. And then finally, on angels, Calvin writes that we are not to place angels on the same plane as Christ; that they do not have divine glory as does Christ. And Paul deals with this in a letter to the Colossians. Sure. We should not worship the angels, but we should acknowledge that it is one way in which God cares for us and protects us. They can give us hope. Okay. So there's your kind of, but I I just want you to realize, I think what's important for us about this weird discussion is, is really the impact of history on their thinking and how they are still caught up with things that actually, and write things that, that come to haunt us today in, in a very modern world. Surely, yeah. Thanks. So during our break, I was talking about how much fun I, I had researching, you know, uh, this kind of, really this mythology, these angels and demons and, you know, and, how unimportant it seems, and yet at the same time, how important it seems, and how often I have somebody that I you know don't know well will will tell me that Satan's out there, Satan's Satan's present all the time, and and then you know, 
very much alive is this kind of conversation. And um, I, I, I think it really, it, it really impacts their church services even, and to the mm-hmm. point of that your church becomes more about Satan than it does about God. And um, I, I know we've mentioned this in the past, but when all of a sudden you're getting a lot of credit to Satan. Um, and so it seems like a good place to start, and yet, uh, what do you think, Alan? Well, I mean, so for me, I think I think the question is, how do you preach on this passage without giving credence to this whole dualistic idea that there is this devil out there who is a being who can tempt everyone and whom you know who has this kind of omnipresence and omnipotence and is able omniscience even is able to know our thoughts and, and is able to te- mm-hmm. tempt us with the very things that you know we we are we we are we are um, vulnerable are the very spots where we're vulnerable um, uh, you know, it just, it, it, it attributes too much, mm-hmm. you know, uh, as I've said before, I mean, to me, the, you know, as I read theology, the only consistent view, if there is a Satan, if there is a devil, um, it is a created being, which means it does not have the properties of omniscience, omnipotence, and, and omnipresence. Those mm-hmm. are properties that are, that are, those are characteristics that are appropriate only mm-hmm. to God. And the other thing is, in the New Testament, as I alluded to in my segment, in, in the New Testament, if there is a Satan, it is a defeated being, right? right. It is a defeated right. being. Now, you know, as a as a as a modern quote or slash postmodern person, you know, I'm much more comfortable talking about the power of evil in the world right. than Me I too. am talking about a Satan. Right. Um, um, and and you know. Um, to me, this 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 relates to the whole question of where where does evil come from? Because right. I, I don't, I'm not comfortable ascribing the origin of evil to God, but um, uh, I also recognize that um, it is not sufficient to say that evil comes solely from humans, because I think there is a level of evil in this world that mm-hmm. is beyond well, just Calvin, simple human Calvin selfishness. Calvin identifies that, right? And he talks about, in his language, right, he talks about Satan as being a cause of evil, but mm. there's also evil that is natural to human beings right. that he doesn't attribute to, to Satan. Right. But... Um, I, I'm just, I've never, I've never, I'm, I'm comfortable speaking about uh, uh, um, a kind of cosmic evil in this world. Right, it, uh, that, exactly. That, 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 and, and its origins are a mystery, are a mystery. We don't, I mean, I, I would agree right. with Calvin on that. We really don't have any way of explaining where does evil come from if God is good well, and loving. and that's and why Satan all, is all so attractive, right? It, right? it gives people an easy explanation of, right. and, and, and something they can even visualize as, obviously this is evil. Very tangible, right? Very tangible. Make evil very tangible, but in doing so they invest this Satan or this devil with properties that are almost akin to God. Right. And and again, you know, um, you know, we, we were talking about a mighty fortress. Yes, it's a beautiful hymn. I love the music, but I hate the words yeah. because it yeah. ascribes to Satan. I think way right. more than, right. than 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 he's due. When I pulled it out today, and I've got actually a more accurate translation than like the one that we use, you know, and so, um, you know. The old knavish foe, Satan, he means earnest now, force and cunning sly, his horrid policy on earth, there's nothing like him. Yeah. You know, so yeah. here's this. It's, but, but, and, and, and to me, that, all that language creates fear. I agree. It, it creates. creates fear. And, and, and I don't see, I mean, you know, there are places in the New Testament that talk about um, being aware and being cautious, but I don't see any room in, in the New Testament for fear, you know, because if, if there's anything, the power of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, you know, the, the assurance that Christ is the one who's reigning at the right hand of God, that, that's, that is something that, that, that really is meant to banish fear. Exactly. And, yeah. and, and all yeah. of this language of Satan just just sort of I mean, it sort of sets up Satan as a rival to Jesus, mm-hmm. as if somehow Satan has the same power that exactly. Jesus has. Well, and, but there's people that believe that, and I suppose they, 
they would argue that those people who, you know, have fallen away from the church are somehow possessed by evil or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, 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 you know, I've met with a, a few people over the years that, um, you know, this is kind of their theology, it's kind of the worldview, and, and their whole life at church is so feared with, with fear and anger mm-hmm. and, um, it's such and 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 looking at pointing figures trying to discover who's not a true christian and who is and uh, it seems exactly opposite of what jesus yeah. wants us well, to and, be you know, and do well and you know you see in popular culture there've been these waves of interest in evil so you know yes. you had the whole thing about almost satan possession or demon possession well, you know in one at what in one stage and then you yeah. had this whole stage of of um of vampires and werewolves oh, yes, yes and then you had this whole stage now then there was the stage of zombies uh, you yes. know and and it's just like i mean it it's people have this popular fascination with evil and they 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 you know that evil gets uh, located in various um ways but um um again um you know so when we're looking at the temptation, there, there's some things we need to see. I mean, first of all, just like when Jesus encounters a demon-possessed person, there's no contest. Right. Right? right. I mean, Jesus simply commands the demon, yeah. and, and the demons have to obey. Right. The same thing is true here. There's yeah. really no contest here, Mm-mm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, um, um, uh, Jesus was was weakened by the fact that he had fasted, mm-hmm. right, right, for forty days. Right, right. But, that's huge. Yeah, but um, but he still has the presence of mind to simply recite the most basic of scripture in the Hebrew uh, canon, right, and in mm-hmm. the Jewish mindset, the the, the 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 Ten Commandments and the Shema and all of that section. That was just the most fundamental scripture. In their mm-hmm. in their exactly. theology, right? Yep. So he's citing. He's going back to the foundations, right? Right. And, and he's able to cite this, and and basically just just citing the scripture wards off the temptation. Mm-hmm. And so then comes the next one, and and it's a distortion of scripture. Right. And but Jesus is able to see right through that. There's no there's no sense of which you know he was somehow tripped up by it. He's able to see right through mm-hmm. it and say, you know, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then in the last one, you know, <laughs> again, it's 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 almost it's almost pathetic, you know, that Satan makes this claim, mm-hmm. the, the, the devil makes this claim, oh, I can give you all of this authority, which was, you know, no, that was not true. And, and you know, Jesus sees through it. And, and right. then he basically says, be gone, you know, mm-hmm. go away. And, and Satan has to obey him. Right. So, so I, again, I think the, the, the image in the New Testament is that if there is a a, def, a devil, if there is a Satan, it's it's a defeated being. Mm-hmm. You know, it does not have, it can't stand up to Jesus, mm-hmm. <laughs> not at all. And, and so, you know, the idea is, I think, and this is where we get into the idea that the temptation narratives are meant to encourage us. Mm-hmm. Yes, we we face temptations of our mm-hmm. own, certainly. Mm-hmm. Where do those temptations come from? Well, I think a lot of them come from our own selfish desires, but yep. some of them may come from elsewhere. Right, you know, there's right. certain circumstances that happen to us that are beyond our control, and right, we may right, feel right. like we're being tempted or tested by that. Um, but again, I think the the encouragement is: look, look how easily Jesus was able to just dismiss this. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. And, and and Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is the one who's at the right hand of God, who is reigning over mm-hmm. our lives right now. Right, right. Who, who, who is all powerful? Right. Who, who is all present? Right. right. Because he he has been exalted back to to his place with God, where he is able to to be present with all right. of us. Unlike a devil who can't be omnipresent, Jesus right. is all present. Jesus is all knowing. Right. And and he's on our he's the one who's on our side. Yeah. And so yeah, this yeah, is yeah. this is why I've never really felt any need for angels either. Right. Right. I know. Right. Exactly. exactly. I look to God for my defense. I don't look to a guardian angel. Yeah. I I I agree a hundred percent. And um, and yet I I know that's really popular too. You know. And sometimes it's 
you know, my mother and I had an angel collection of mm. little things. Oh, and, of course, and, and, of course. You know, there's little things. And, and it's a nice, sure. nice, but there's a lot of emphasis on my guardian angel and, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I, I don't. There's a whole TV show about enough, it. <laughs> I don't know, yeah, I don't know if people put as much emphasis on angels as yeah. they do on devils. I'm when you sure. think about it, you know, I'm an angel's sure. kind of a nice image. And I think people think it's a nice idea, but I don't, I don't know how many people really believe in angels these days, but they definitely believe in devil. They do. And, and you know, I'm, I think about C.S. Lewis and his, his demonology and the screw tape letters. You oh, know. yes. Um, he's got, you know, the devil has all of these demons at his call. So that sort of solves the question of whether the the devil uh, a devil is omnipresent right, right. And, or omniscient you know he's got these <laughs> <Yeah>, the <just> minions <laughs> myriads he's got myriads of, of minions who are there to do his bidding and report to him and so he yes. gathers the information that way and he's able to he's able to to influence people through them right right but again it's it's just kind of it's it's just sort of pushing the question one step back you know it still attributes too much power to satan because the whole point of this story is jesus is triumphant jesus right right and 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 this is the story of matthew's gospel jesus fulfills all righteousness in the face of every temptation and and the greatest temptation of all was going to the cross and he fulfilled that right and and as a result he was able to say now all authority in yes, heaven yes. and on earth have been given to me. Yeah. And the idea is by God. I, and when you say that, my mind just says, and that is awesome. Well, and, and that is where our hope, that is where our faith, that is where our comfort. Yeah, exactly. That is, that is where our safety yeah. comes from. I mean, I, when you, is your description is just this... I mean, I, I really mean that in truth way, in terms of awe, but yeah. also in terms of wrapped in that is that wonderful blanket of comfort. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. yeah. I, we, we, we don't have to fear. And, and I know that, I know that that's the point of a mighty fortress is our God at the, in the end, but it just takes too, it goes through too much yeah. Satanology yeah. or demonology and too, too robust of a demonology. It's too close to that dualism it before it gets to the end. And right? I know many, many people don't like that hymn and I, you know, and yet you put it in on Reformation Sunday just because, mm-hmm. but again, if you're preaching Reformation Sunday and you're talking about the history I think you can get by with it a little better, but most people don't. Anyway, uh, great discussion. Thanks, Alan. Thank you, Christy. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together... Listen Listen for for the the word. word.